Thank you for listening to Therapy for Guys. My name is Kike Autry, and I'm a licensed professional counselor in Katy, Texas. In this podcast, I want to explore the issues that men stay silent about, our struggles with anxiety and depression, our relationship issues, obstacles that we face with a diagnosis like ADHD or autism or OCD, and our big existential crises, those related to spirituality and religion, to larger cultural realities, and to the question of the meaning of life. If you enjoy this podcast and you would like to learn more about me, I would encourage you to check out my website. You can find it at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. I would love to hear from you. I would love to connect. And as always, remember, continue the conversation. Hey guys, I hope you're doing well. You are in for a wonderful treat. This is one of my favorite conversations. We go really deep and I think it's going to challenge you. In this episode, I have an in-depth conversation with Dr. Richard Boothby. This is the second time Dr. Boothby has been on the podcast. The first time was to discuss his memoir, Exploring uh, the Death of His Son by Suicide. That was a really good conversation and I'll include that show, that episode, uh, in the show notes, if you haven't listened to it, I do recommend that you go back and listen to that because it's connected in some ways to our conversation today. Now, in this conversation, we discuss his marvelous book, Embracing the Void, Rethinking the Origin of the Sacred. Uh, Rick is a professor of philosophy at Loyola University, Maryland, and he's the author of many books, including Death and Desire, Psychoanalytic Theory in Lacan's Return to Freud, Freud as Philosopher, Metapsychology After Lacan, Sex on the Couch, What Freud Still Has to Teach Us About Sex, and the book I just mentioned, Blown Away, Refinding Life After My Son's Suicide. Now, if you know Dr. Todd McGowan, who runs the Why Theory podcast, I've also had him on uh, therapy for guys. He's publicly said, and I'll include the uh, the link to the episode, 
that he thinks this book that we're discussing is the best psychoanalytic take on religion. And I'm nowhere near Dr. Todd McGowan, but I have to agree. As we discuss in this episode, our conversation will likely frustrate you uh, if you're religious or if you're non-religious. It's frustrating to both the atheists and the ardent Christians. It's supposed to get you to think about the ambiguities and the ambivalence around religion. And so if it's frustrating, we've, we've kind of served our purpose. But if you listen to the episode, you'll find there's key moments that we explore, which hopefully will whet your appetite. We explore Freud's approach to religion, Romain Roland and the oceanic feeling. We talk about Jacques Lacan and get into a lot of his ideas, including the imaginary, the symbolic, and the real. Uh, we get into Das Ding and its relationship to the religious impulse. We explore how all of this gets played out in Greek polytheism, Judaism, and especially in Christianity, which we really focus on. We also explore what I call an ethics of unknowing and discuss Keats' concept of negative capability. And we explore so, so much more. Guys, this, again, is one of my favorite episodes. I really enjoyed it. Um, It's a long episode with so much great material. I think this will give you a lot to think about. And as always, I just want to encourage you to find at least one other person to have a conversation with, to explore what we have called the unknown and the dusting and the other, to explore uh, a, a level of unknowing that sure will result in some anxiety, but can also result in a tremendous amount of fascination and joy and ecstasy. So find someone to talk to about some of these ideas Check out the book, uh, listen to the other episodes, and as always, continue the conversation. Rick, thank you so much again for being a guest on my podcast, Therapy for Guys. I so enjoyed our first conversation discussing your book, Blown Away, that when I found out you had this book on psychoanalysis and Lacan and religion, I knew I had to read it and and go deep into it. Because as we were just talking, I have my own sort of complicated relationship with the religious impulse. So I'm just grateful for your presence and your willingness to open up and and talk to me about it. Well, KK, I'm delighted. Uh, I too really enjoyed our last conversation. And um, just to flatter you a little bit, I was really 
kind of astonished, but also very respecting and, and impressed that that you asked such um, direct and really uh, useful questions that really helped me as a, as a respondee to come up with um, my own thoughts. So um, I'm, de- I'm delighted that you found this latest book to be youthful um, enough to want to talk about it. Yeah, that's great. Well, I really appreciate that compliment. I'm I'm letting it sink in. So thank you for saying that. I, I know I, I just had a couple of things I wanted to say before kind of getting into the real substance of the book. The the first thing is, you know, there, there, there's quite a few listeners who, you know, won't, won't really know anything about psychoanalysis or Lacan, but but they're interested in deep ideas. So I, I think we need to go as deep as, as we want to go. But I guess a compliment that I want to give you is I find Lacan is not very easy to understand. Even secondary literature about his work can be very complicated. And so I felt you did a great job clarifying some of his big ideas. And the book was very readable. Sure, it required some heavy lifting. And, you know, when you're discussing religion, I think it should require that. But I just wanted to compliment you that it was a very well-written book and clear and quite powerful so, so thank you for writing it. Um, well, there's a very um, unflattering uh, reason. If if I have succeeded, <laughs> a certain amount of maybe God-given gift to write a little bit, but I also have found over the years that um, you're absolutely correct. Jacques Lacan had uh, the French analyst of the 20th century dies in 1980. He um, has a, an absolutely notorious really uh obscure style mm. and he likes it that way and his 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 sort of reasoning is that freud made his, freud who was often touted as a real master of prose style um lacan felt that freud made it too easy for his readers mm. um and thereby they 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 kind of grappled on to uh, interpretations that were not subtle enough and not complex enough and not kind of uh, philosophically sophisticated enough. And uh, Lacan was enormously sensitive to this. So he wanted to really um, use his discourse to almost model the relationship of the reader to the unconscious, the way one has to do as an analyst uh, or simply as a human being living in one's own life and not understanding lots of things that are really basic about that life. But I, um, from the get-go, really wanted to get clearer. Uh, his obscurity really frustrated me, and I've written a number of books about Lacanian theory, making an immense effort to try to 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 make it talk simply, um, not full of jargon and not full of kind of um, in, almost intentional obscurity. And this book, uh, I felt like, more than ever, I wanted it to appeal to a very broad audience and be accessible. Okay. So I really worked hard to try to do that. Well, and you know, another thing that I wanted to highlight that I think connects to that last thing you said is throughout the book, almost like a thread just woven through the entire you know book, is this potential critic that throws up these questions, you know, around your your kind of central argument, and and I just thought that was a very helpful tool or technique to to keep us engaged and because I had some of the same questions that the you know the imagined critic had so I'm I'm grateful that you put that in there there's a little bit of a joke behind that okay. I really I like it made it easy for me to um 
to sort of re-engage the reader when I felt like, yeah, the reader's probably getting kind of tired. And so we need the critic to come in and kind of cut to the chase. But the critic um, is modeled on the critic that Freud himself uses in his little book called The Future of an Illusion. Mm. He also has a little critic who keeps bugging him about how his his, uh, <laughs> his whole argument doesn't make sense. <laughs> uh, so I borrowed that from Freud. Oh, okay, great, great. Okay, now, since you mentioned Freud, that's kind of where I wanted to start, right? In a lot of ways, that's where your book begins. Would you mind giving the audience a sense of not only who Freud was, but but kind of his three-pronged, I think you call it his three-pronged spear, uh, his, 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 his take on religion. Where, where, where should we start in terms of understanding how Freud, the, the father of all this psychoanalysis stuff, where, where he was in terms of how he thought about religion? Um, okay, I'll tackle that. Let me first establish something very general sure. that people approaching this book might appreciate. Please. This is this is a book, and I'll, I'll come back to your question, which is an important one, uh, a good one to start with. But anybody picking up this book um, needs to know that y- you've already pointed to something. It is an academic book. Mm. It's a substantive book of, about, you know, about difficult stuff. But it also tries to be really accessible so that you don't need to be a specialist to get something out of it. The second thing to say, though, is I I have a feeling many people would wonder right off the bat, okay, embracing the void, rethinking the origin of the sacred. Is this book embracing religion or is it a critique of religion? Mm. Because, of course, Freud was an absolutely uncompromising critic. I mean, he was emphatically aggressively proud of his atheism and was in and it was just out to say look you would be nuts to be anything but an atheist you'd be intellectually kind of bankrupt to do anything but reject um uh, the religious belief um, as a kind of terrible crutch you know the intellectual crutch right lacan is really interesting because he obviously even if you read a little bit of Lacan, he's constantly mentioning religious figures, religious stories, and religious texts, religious problematics. And he's doing it with a kind of sympathy, seemingly really signaling his own openness, but very much his own departure from whatever stance Freud had. So, And the book reflects that from early on. I'm hoping readers will get into it and realize this is a book that takes the religious impulse very seriously mm. and very openly. In other words, there's something here. We really have to pay attention to this. Freud's critique often basically, especially in this little book in the late in late late on in his life, The Future of an Illusion, quite a short book, easy to read, by the way, also. But that little book really was supposed to say to people, look, this whole cast of mind is basically appropriate for an eight-year-old, mm. but not for a 30-year-old or a 50-year-old. This is kind of, you know, Easter Bunny Santa Claus stuff. This is all basically intended to be too good to be true. Mm. It's a so story that helps us to get through the difficulties and the and the and the and the, and the, and the, and the sorrows and, and and the trauma of life. So if you want that, if you want a sort of sugar-coated reality. 
okay, but don't fool yourself that you're being intellectually honest. Mm. Well, Lacan really, from the very get-go, we don't know exactly what he's up to, but he's definitely more sympathetic. And I guess one way I would generally describe my book is that it's presenting that sympathy that Lacan has for the religious impulse. He really thinks this is something that is so central to being a human being. We really have to try to understand it and take it really seriously. On the other hand, the book is also, my book, is also following Lacan, critical. So the, the, the Freudian moment of, of critique comes back, but it's in tension with this much more sympathetic, much more open, and much more um, um, accepting, in a sense, sure. of the religious impulse. Yeah, wow. Man, that was really helpful. And And, and just, you know... In, in terms of this episode, please, anytime I ask a question, but but you think there's another way to put it or, or I'm, I'm missing something in your argument that needs to be fleshed out, please feel free to interrupt me and, and kind of move us in the direction you think it should go. I, I, I want to be able to, I tell this to my clients, I want to share power with you. I, I, I don't have a fantasy of it going a particular way. I just want to have this deep conversation with you. My, uh, my fear, going back to this basic point about <laughs> Kind of a mixed, a mixed treatment of religion, both sympathetic sure. and also critical. Sure, Welcome and you know, and, and that's kind of where I'm at too. So, I I can spend all day pointing out some of the positive aspects of it, but I can point out as many negative ones as well. So, I, I'm hoping that we kind of capture that nuance in this conversation because yeah. I think you do mm-hmm. in the book. Well, Freud, to go back to your opening question, sure. Freud was unapologetically and unrelentingly critical. Um, and basically um, he accuses, he has, he has more than one big um, objection slash criticism of religious belief. But I think that the, the most elemental one is he thinks it's a kind of intellectual immaturity. Yeah, It's a kind of crutch. It's a kind of lie we tell ourselves to make life a little easier to tolerate. Mm. In effect, what he says, and this is a quote from the end of the Future of an Illusion, his his third um, uh, or one of one of his last big statements, and maybe the most accessible for most readers, he basically says, "Well, this is a matter of growing up. We need to grow up to the tragedy of life, to the darkness of life, to the unanswerability of many of the key." questions that face us in life it's a matter he says of intellectual integrity Mm. he's unrelenting and and really kind of insistent on this and um it's a a hard lesson for a lot of people um and in in a way i can understand why it would make a lot of people really turn off to freud's treatment because basically he's he's so severe saying hey there's no ambiguity here you're either thinking clearly and, and and maturely and you're rejecting naive, childish belief in some kind of deity who's your dad. Or you're a scientist like me. Uh, uh, or rather, you are this scientist like me. Or, or you're kind of lost, Sure, you know, in this belief, faith. Sure. Do, do you think, in light of that, it'd be helpful to bring up his correspondence with 
uh, Romain Roland and, and how, how Roland kind of challenged his severity around kind of religion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. This is, um, the exchange with this French, um, friend, uh, about the idea that religion is Roland suggests is a kind of oceanic feeling. He calls Mm. it a feeling of belonging to the universe. Like it's all some sort of a seamless whole of which I too am a part. And uh, Roland says, couldn't you have a lot of your critical comments yet save this one kind of core idea that religion is how we recognize to ourselves that we are part of something bigger Mm. and that something bigger is ultimately kind of integrated and, and organized, even if we can't completely fill in the blanks. And Freud's response to that is really interesting. He says, you know, I've never felt that. I've never felt anything like your oceanic feeling, Mm. this feeling of the oneness of everything. He's always, uh, he he confesses, he's always felt a bit alienated from other people, I think is one of the big moments of alienation. But I think Freud confesses there that he just doesn't get it, that sense of we are all part of one great seamless oneness of being yeah okay so 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 i get it right how do you pronounce his name the the guy that he corresponds with oh um um uh, you had it right roman roland okay roland okay so don't you think he also was was trying to say hey freud that there's kind of exoteric streams in religion you know kind of we could say the common person that just kind of believes in god or just follows the law that, that's one thing, but there's always been kind of this esoteric dimension to religion. There's a deeper, almost mystical strand in all the major religions that isn't as simplistic as you're portraying, you know, religion to be. And and I'm not saying Freud uh, gave in to that argument, but but I thought it was an interesting point that he made to him. Right, exactly. Well, what, what, what a lot of what Roland was responding to was Freud's boiling religion down to fit the very tight little uh, frame of Freud's theory of the Oedipus complex. Yeah. The whole thing is, and, and at that level, it, it becomes all too obvious, all too damningly obvious. We bow down to a father God. Mm. The way the child in the family is awed, literally afraid of this much bigger masculine figure who appears to be the boss of the family life and uh, the lawgiver and the punisher. And Freud says, Hey, we can't miss this parallel. Right. And we really need to take it seriously. Maybe that's what the real core of the religious belief is about. And Roland is basically saying, okay, yeah, that happens a lot of sure, sure, sure. But what do you do with the person whose religious feeling is rooted in this sense of a kind of, unknowing but appreciative and awed oneness of everything you get up and you see the sunset and you feel like that's so beautiful and i'm so i feel so gifted to have another morning where i can hear the birds and see the green of the foliage and the sun's light is bathing it everything in this warm glow and i'm part of that and i appreciate it yes it feels like a gift I think Roland is trying to sort of simply sort of 
ratchet things back to this very fundamental experience and allow and, and try to reopen the question, isn't this experience all too easily kind of dismissed by your psychoanalytic mm. interpretation? Sure. And then, okay, and then Freud kind of responds with, this is maybe uh, a regressive return to the mother. What 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 Roland has been saying? Yes, that's true. That's true. Um, um, Freud doesn't develop it very much, but because actually, it's interesting. If he if he were to have developed that very much, he would end up in a in a position a lot like Lacan's. Ah, oh, interesting. Yes, yes, I like that. He he puts the emphasis on the 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 the, the authoritative father, but he doesn't. Interesting. He does, and he does hint that this oceanic feeling, this feeling of oneness, yes, that was modeled for the child precisely in its relationship with the mother. So the mother's in embracing, um, securing, and and so pleasurable um, hug is this oceanic feeling in its most primitive moment. Mm. Freud seems so attached to his Oedipal scheme that all he can think of is, yeah, that's exactly the the, the, the all-too-warm-and-fuzzy place that we need to get out of in order to face real life. And it's the father's job to say, hey, kid, time to get serious, time to go to school, time to get to work, time like, to do Time your to grow up. Time to grow up, exactly, and give up these sugar-coated fantasies mm. uh, that you've been kind of suckled on all these years. Um, I'm here to tell you, I'm here to play the heavy, give you some tough love. Sure. And tell you, you can't stay there forever and be a real adult human being. Yeah. Now, you know, one thing you wrote that, that I found quite powerful, I mean, this is... Uh, <laughs> Not, not to say a pro-Freud comment and, a, and an anti-Freud comment, but you, you said that Freud kind of looked at religion and said, these people are almost pushing too much certainty. That, that, cert, that, that the, the, the strand of religion that he was critiquing was, was almost making the world too simple. And th- there's something about that that really resonated with me. I, I appreciate that lens. Yes, absolutely correct. And it's... It's one of the reasons why, for me, taking the Lacanian view that I've taken, um, one of the reasons why it's so deeply satisfying, to me anyway, is that the Lacanian view, which is quite different in key ways from Freud's assessment, he really theorizes religion in a new way, using, broadly speaking, psychoanalytic categories, but it's a different animal now in Lacan's hands. And a lot of what uh, I think is really wonderful about that is Lacan puts that openness to the unknown at the absolute heart of the whole thing. Mm. Where, Freud, where Freud was saying, this is what we want. We want somebody who is not ch- believing in a kind of childish way a way that makes all the bad unanswerable questions go away because we have this really lovely answer for them all. The name of which is simply God, you know, God's always the answer. God solves all my problems. And Lacan in this sense really agrees with Freud. He thinks that there is an enormous danger in religious belief as we often find it 
all around the world in various religions, orthodoxy and dogmatism and 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 belief that is kind of you know all the more valuable because we believe it simply because it it it, it it's it's holy. We don't know quite how it's true, but we're told it is, and therefore we sign up hook, line, and sinker. Right. Uh, Freud and Lacan are both, I think, at one on this one. They both say, no, 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 real intellectual maturity means being able to tolerate uncertainty and complexity and even outright absurdity Mm. built into life. So the one who looks to religion to answer all my questions is already off on the wrong foot for both of them. But Lacan, to my mind, what's wonderful about Lacan's, the way he opens up a different view, is he installs this moment of unknowing right in the heart of the matter. Yeah, wow. You might say it's the alpha and omega of the whole religious experience is something about the unknown. Yeah, no, well said, Rick. I I, I just couldn't agree more. Now, I, I think I think it's time to kind of really get into Lacan. But before we do that, is there anything else about Freud's understanding of religion that's just important background? I mean, one thing that I'm thinking is you talk about the superego. I guess that's related to the father. But then a, a part, I'll be honest, that I didn't quite grasp in the book, I think it's my own limitation, is around Freud's understanding of the symptom and religion. In your three-pronged approach, you talked about illusion, the superego, and then the symptom, if I'm if I'm remembering that correctly. And I'm just curious how that fits into all this before we kind of jump into Lacan. Um, okay, that is really relevant um, because, as you know, I make a great deal of the, the Freudian concept of symptom, but I do it in a rather different way okay. under influence of Lacan. Sure. What, what Freud um, does with this is it, it, it appears in a, for the most part, in a little essay. Um, call, uh, it's on obsession, obsessional, obsessional neurosis. Okay. And what he means by obsessional neurosis is a a kind of uh, some kind of behavior, often very repetitive, and often nonsensical. You know, as an obsessive, I simply arrange my papers on my desktop to be rectilinear and all in the same kind of organization, you know. And that just calms me down. Mm. I still feel better. When things get messy, they're all over the place, I get jittery and anxious. So I'm consoling myself and reducing my own anxiety with this symptom. Here, obsessive neatness. Mm. Well, what Freud says about this symptom, obsession as a symptom, is he basically says it's serving two things at once. It's both defending against some impulse I have. So my 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 penchant, my insistence that everything be all my pens be lined up uh, parallel, and all the papers are are sort of square with each other, and, and my coffee and so on is cleaned up over here. And if I spill a little coffee, I need to clean that up immediately because you know I get kind of jittery because things are getting messy. What the payoff of this obsessional cleanliness and order is a feeling of control. Mm. It feels like um, this is enabling me to be the one in control. And Freud says what really is being controlled here 
is something about my own impulses. It's something about my own inner chaos, which is being kind of have it's having the lid put on it. It's been de- denied in a sense. I'm not this chaotic, impulsive being because I've got everything nice and neat and tidy here. My books here in back of me are a great example, right? I love Everybody. It. Everybody's in categories. Everybody's nice, straight up, you know. Think of it if I had a giant pile of books in the middle of my room. It would be more difficult to remain relaxed and focused. Oh, sure. Use this to kind of defend myself against my own kind of chaos. And that's suppressing some impulse that I have, says Freud. When I get everything neat and tidy like this, uh, I've kind of won control above all over myself mm. like maybe there's a part of me that feels frustrated with being a philosopher and having to read these books and so i i i attain almost a kind of victory over the frustration and the sort of uh discomfort of feeling like an ignorant person in the face of all these big fat books so i kind of take my revenge upon them by kind of putting them in their place you might say yeah that's a great way so, to put it okay it's defensive on that side, defensive against some particular impulse that I have. But notice the other key thing. He says, while it's being defensive and helping me feel a little more in control, even over, uh, over myself, it's also discharging something of the very same uh, impulse. Take a really simple example. Take biting your nails because you're anxious. Yeah, you're, you're you're biting your nails, and because you're sitting outside the office before your interview with the new boss, you're suppressing your impulse to be either terrified or aggressive. You feel like this boss is going to judge you, and you hate him for it. Sure. So instead, you're biting your nails instead of kind of lashing out. Okay, so that's repressing your anxiety, your 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 aggression, your sort of anger and fury. But at the same time, it's actually expressing mm. that fury because you're actually gnawing on something. You really might, if you didn't have this unconscious repression, you might actually be gnawing the nose off the face of the boss who you hate. Sure, but you're, you're gnawing, you're gnawing your own claws you're gnawing your own fingernails so this mix the symptomatic mix it's both repressive and expressive was very very important for freud okay and then okay and maybe you're going there but but then what's what's the next step in in terms of how you link it to kind of the religious impulse well this is this question now, I'll try to do this briefly. I'm, I'm realizing I'm giving too long answers. Here's the really brief answer to that, I think, but really big point of the book. Sure. From a Lacanian point of view, re- the religious impulse arises in relation to what we do not know. And as we'll talk further, I'm sure, yes. what we do not know, especially about our fellow human beings that we don't know what they're feeling and thinking. We don't know what they're capable of. They are the sort of primary object we greet in the world that we really are at a loss permanently. We're at a loss to know who they really are and what really makes them tick. And in the face of that unknown, religion both 
worships, it sort of says there is a power larger than me, which I don't really understand and I don't control. So in that sense, religion is opening to this thing, which is otherwise anxiety-producing and painful. However, religion also, and here is an emphasis much more of Lacan than it is of Freud, but but it's in, in Freud to some extent too. Religion provides a kind of reassuring framework okay. which I can control this exposure to something anxiety-producing, which is the abyssal character of the unknown. Mm. So that theme, you can find it in Freud, but you can also find it now in a new form in Lacan, where the unknown is the key thing. Okay. I both can experience it, but also experience it in a sort of controlled way. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Okay, Rick, do, do you think it's a good time to just transition into Lacan? And and I, and I guess if, if, if you think it is, I wonder if it wouldn't be helpful to maybe give a little bit of some background on who he was and maybe talk about some of his key terms, you know, the the imaginary, the symbolic, the real, the big other, the little. I mean, there's just so much. I, I know we could do, you know, a whole series on his concepts, but I, I think it might be helpful to get into the heart of your argument around Dusting and our relation right. to, to the religious impulse. Right. Okay. Um, basically, Jacques Lacan was a French psychoanalyst uh, born uh, in 1900, I believe. Um, dies in 81. I, I think that's right. Uh, and his his big claim was that he was returning to Freud, mm. which is an odd claim because it also is so obvious when you read any of Lacan that this is not any simple reading of Freud. <laughs> In fact, it's quite critical. And he becomes more critical as he goes on, especially around the formulation of the Oedipus complex. He basically is saying, as, as he matures, Freud was on to something, we're incredibly indebted to him, but he didn't really get the dynamic right. Lacan is interested in Freud and claims he's going back to Freud. The famous, you know, war cry was return to Freud. And what he meant by that was return to the unconscious. Okay. Freud and, Freudian psychoanalysis had, after Freud's death, had become more and more a matter of, you know, analyze the human self and its various coping mechanisms. And that all too easily allowed us to think that we have a self and we have these defenses against things that make us anxious. And we just have to reassure the self in therapy to say, now, don't be anxious. You don't need to be anxious about aliens kidnapping your wife. On the contrary, you have to be a little more conscious that there are things about your wife that frustrate you and actually, you might actually like her to be kidnapped by aliens. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, I hope my wife doesn't hear that. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) So, what Lacan wants to, to emphasize here is that 
we can take a lot from Freud, but we have to make sure that we're really doing justice to the, what's truly unconscious. Um, and we're not just focused on an ego who is trying to better and more efficiently gratify itself. Sure. And that's the the great danger of the, the the joke I just made about the man who's frustrated by his wife and and dreams that maybe she might or, or fears that she might be kidnapped by aliens, because actually there's a part of him that feels like my life would be a lot simpler without her bothering me. Sure, I love her, but she's also a pain in the neck. So I have these strange dreams of her being kidnapped. What Lacan wants to say uh, is that that way of looking at things although lots of, it could apply to lots of people that's about the ego about those struggle to be in control and the ego's frustration to come up against obstacles yeah like somebody you live with who doesn't agree with you about what we ought to be doing much more important than the ego is what freud taught us about the unconscious what freud called id and unless you're dealing with that, the depths of what you really do not know and do not control, what is unknown to yourself about yourself, you're not really doing psychoanalysis. You're not in the psychoanalytic perspective. Well, okay, what does is, what is Lacan think that unconscious thing is? The ego is the first step. He associates it with what you were just calling, Kike, the, the imaginary. Okay. The ego is is the self that defines itself over and against some other self. That's my wife, Maud. And here I am, Ethan. I'm different from her. She stabilizes my sense of myself precisely because she's different from me. And I can tell who's who mm. she wears. Dresses, I wear pants. It's that dumb at some level. Sure. sure. <laughs> it has to do with images. It has to do with markers of difference, mm. but markers of difference that are primary differences between self and other. And I navigate the world to a very large extent, we all do, with those simple markers. But there are two other big categories, symbolic and real. And they get slipperier. Okay. What is the symbolic? The symbolic is not images, but signifiers, words. And in very, very crude, but I think not use, un, unuseful terms, basically what Lacan thinks is that when we use words, we are always saying more than we think we are. Mm. Every entry into language both makes some sense. Sometimes, actually, it makes almost no sense. But usually it makes some sense but also leaves a margin of question about what is the person really saying to me? Okay, I, I, hear what, I hear the words you just said. Yeah, okay. But what are you really trying to tell me? Mm. When somebody comes to you and says, oh, Kike, I'm so happy to see you. Well, that seems straightforward, except it leaves the question, why exactly are they so happy to see you? Right. Is that something you actually are going to be happy about when you have it more explained or not? Well, you don't know. So the symbolic is both, it's the whole world of our being enmeshed in language, being spoken by language. Mm. 
But it's not what a lot of philosophers of language try to teach us, that language is a kind of tool that enables us to more directly and completely manipulate reality. No, the Lacanian view is, that may be true up to a point, but the Lacanian view is, when we use language, it gives us an opening on some piece of reality, but it's only a partial opening. Mm. It also leaves us wondering, what does it really mean? What does the word home really mean? Mm. I think home, oh, that's obvious. Home is where the heart is. Home is where the, the little hut, the little smokestack that's emitting the lovely uh, smoke of the fire inside. Home is the flower garden out front and so on and so forth and the little white picket fence. No, that's an image. Mm. What the word home really signifies, you don't have to wait too long for this to dawn on you. Beyond the sort of comfy, familiar idea called up by the word home, home is extremely mysterious. What does it really mean to go home? What does longing for home really mean? Well, Lacan wants to insist, to really know yourself means to come to, come to the point where you can admit to yourself, you're not exactly sure what it means. Mm. I can take one more step. Yeah, and, 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 and then I have a question for you that, that's coming up. I'm talking too long. Again. No, no, no. I love it, man. I, I could just sit and listen to you for hours. So, so keep going, please. <laughs> this is so helpful. Did, you, well, you, yeah, go ahead, please. Well, Lacan is, is, I think, to his credit, he is a thinker who, for whom the unknown is really the heartbeat of his interest. But if he's correct, our relationship to the unknown is the heartbeat of the psyche itself. Mm. And the imaginary ego relation of image to image, actually what's wrong with it is it thinks it knows too well. You know, it thinks I know who I am because I dress the same way every day. Right. Yeah. Dressing, dressing is a kind of ego repetition, a kind of ego expression is telling me who, who I am. Right. I look at her and I, every morning and I kind of reconfi- I reconfigure myself to look like who I think I'm supposed to be. But identity and meaning is ultimately not an image certainty. On the contrary, if I ask myself really in a searching way, what did home mean when I was a little boy? Mm. I could spend a few years on the couch discovering how complicated and how scary and maybe how emotionally wrenching what I can so quickly call home might have been for me. Gotcha. In fact, it might be a really good analysis. Yeah. The one that discovers all that all that confusion and unknown and, and pain down at the bottom of the truth of the word home. But he kind of finishes this with his third category as it finishes it as in kind of nails it he says we now have to say there's something we want to call the real mm. doesn't at all mean what we usually call reality sure. i'm here in the sure. reality of my, i'm in the reality of my study with my walls of books all well organized well i, 
unfortunately not so well organized, but there they are. <laughs> That's already an attempt to orient my ego in this space. The real is not that nicely organized reality. The real is something that the horizon of what I do not know and cannot know. Mm. Real for Lacan is what a lot of people would would probably prefer and find easier to call the surreal. Mm. And Lacan, by the way, was very interested in the whole surrealist movement. But the real as he's using it is a kind of raw confrontation, a kind of raw engagement with life that leaves you devastated because you don't know how to interpret it. For instance, you could have a drug-induced experience of the real where, you know, you're an acid and suddenly suddenly weird stuff is happening, but basically what's happening is the world you thought you knew is disintegrating. You're still somehow in it, but it's become radically other, radically um, unknown and threatening. Mm. So this is what Lacan means by the real. And to link it back to everything we've been saying here, sure. the, ego, the ego is trying desperately to keep the real from popping up and destabilizing everything. The symbolic is gently suggesting openings on the real, though we usually don't open those doors. We usually talk to each other and we don't stop to say, what do you really mean by that? Do you even know? He leaves this third category, the real, to name and sort of locate into his overall theory the, this, this abyssal character of human existence. The real names the edge of ourselves that borders on a kind of nothing, a mm. kind of void, a kind of, um, a kind of nihilism. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 oh, go ahead. Go ahead, Rick. I don't want to interrupt you. Last little thing, please. That, that, that the the real, surprisingly enough, this horrible, um, anxiety-producing void of chaos slash unknown, the kind of crucial Lacanian move is to say something about the real orients our most profound desire. Mm we are actually ineluctably drawn to that abyss. There's something in us that longs for contact with it, even as we are terrified of it, even as it is dreadfully anxiety-producing to approach. There's something else that we, that, 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 that in us that is drawn to it. Yes. It is, in a weird sense, the heart of us. Yes. Okay, and and I think that is like the perfect segue into getting into you know Das Ding and and Lacan's thoughts on how that develops in our relationship with our mothers. But before we do that, can I go back to the symbolic register? I think for just one second for a question. Um, I know this was a part of the book that was really intriguing to me. I didn't fully understand it, so I was hoping you could kind of help me get a better grasp on it. So if I'm remembering correctly, at one point you quote. Lacan, and and I'm paraphrasing, but he says, you know, one of the things that makes us distinctive in terms of other animals is our 
capacity to engage in, I think what you call the falsely false. Mm -hmm. Do you remember that segment in the book? Yeah, that's actually his phrase. But, okay, but that's yes. his phrase. Okay, C could you just unpack that a little bit? Because I, I think that's interesting. Um, okay, so I would, I would say, PK, I, that's a great question. Can we take one prelim preliminary step and then tackle it? 100%, please. Um, yes. Because we're really, once you get onto this business about the real, Okay. I think it's really handy to, to, to now introduce the notion of dusting. Okay. And then the falsely false will make more sense. Okay, perfect. Dusting, which of course is German for the thing, dusting uh, the thing, actually comes from an unpublished text of Freud's. Okay. Very early text. Uh, in fact, Freud didn't even want it published. He insisted that the friend to whom he sent this about 100-page text, he insisted that he destroy it. Wow. Do, do we know so, where in his career that he, he wrote that? Yes, we do. He wrote okay. it in 1895, okay. which was five years before the interpretation of dreams, which is his really, you know, uh, great first text of psychoanalytic theory okay 1900 so it's five years before the interpretation of dreams um and uh uh freud is then about 40 years old and he has this theory which he presents in this unpublished text called the, the project for a scientific psychology was the name of it, the, the text he has this idea that the child, in its relation to the caretaking mother, really his relationship, her relationship, the infant's relationship to the mother, really has two different levels, two different dimensions. One of which is exactly the imaginary. I see over there opposite me a kind of mirror image. I see someone with a head like mine, shoulders like mine, and hands like mine, and hair like mine, or maybe longer, but they're the same. Sure. I can recognize, and thank goodness it's really reassuring that this mirror, uh, sort of mirror imaging is, is working. That enables me to say to myself, I know who I am because I know who she is, and we're together doing sort of the same thing. I can imitate her. She'll say, she'll smile, and I'll smile back, and she'll caress me, and I'll have some suitable, you know, <laughs> response. That's in Lacanian terms the imaginary. Yeah, and this is how we spend a lot of our lives. We we greet people on the road the same way. We say, "Oh, I recognize you. I, I see you're not a Martian. You're you're a human being." <laughs> but there's another dimension. Freud says in this early unpublished piece, he says, there's another dimension of the other, which I do not cognize. I do not understand. There's a kind of mystery. It's like, yeah, I see her over there, but I'm not sure I get the whole thing. There's something about her that escapes my understanding. She's more than whatever I can tell myself she is. Mm. And this more he calls the thing the unknown thing in the other. And he leaves this as a kind of absolutely uh, crucial and 
and always uh, potentially experienceable feature of the other. What this really means is, in a certain sense, quite simple, but it's very profound at the same time. It means that every time I meet a human being, I both see there, oh yeah, that's another human being. I know those. I'm one. But you also are beset by a certain anxious question about, hmm, what's that other person thinking? What are they really after? Mm. Do I need to be afraid of them? What do they want to do with me? So this is the dimension of Das Ding, which is quite simply, but very profoundly, the dimension of the unknown in the other. And Freud wants this, and Lacan takes this up uh, in the middle of his career and says, this Freud should have published, this Freud shouldn't have forgotten. This theory of Das Ding was really deeply correct. Mm. There's something about the fellow human being that is intrinsically unknowable and as such anxiety producing yeah so a couple of years after he introduces dusting he basically in a in the seminar on anxiety devoted on to the nature and and and, and reality of anxiety he basically says anxiety is not without an object he says it is the most profound object does ding the unknown and the other that's the, the source of human anxiety yeah wow is it possible to just continue to unpack that with some of your reflections in the book on humans and and the way we we use our sight literally the way our our eyeballs are are structured i think connects to some of this there's both the anxiety about it, but there's also kind of the draw toward it as well. You had some powerful yeah. reflections on that in the book that I was hoping you could get into. Yes, exactly. And this will get us toward the false. The false, the false. Okay, good. Yeah, exactly. So if I, um, uh, if I take off my glasses, you can see my eyes a little better. I can't because I need the glasses. <laughs> I say, Rick, you have some beautiful eyes. Who <laughs> <laughs> would know? So, so here's the interesting thing, of course, that, we often um, use the eyes of the other to try to desperately try to read the mood of the other. Sure. So if you if the eyes just get a little kind of cramped up and brows furl a little bit, you can suddenly think, "Oh, this person is not very happy with me," or "Or they're surprised at me," or "They're very." interested in me and so on and so forth you can you strive we strive to read the emotional posture of the other through their eyes sure and notice how even in ordinary intercourse in, a, in, a, in a, meeting people up and down the uh, grocery aisle we we look at what they're looking at we follow their eyes why is she looking over there and this is, you may have read this in the book, it happens to be true, it's an amazing little factoid, that we are the only primate, and I believe maybe even the only animal, but we're the only primate that has this white, um, white tissue around the pupil. Mm. All other primates and most other mammals simply have a dark um, orb inside the eyelids, you know, in, in the little socket of the eye. Yeah. And that whiteness 
allows us to, to read, at least to some extent, the direction of vision of other people okay. to an amazing, an amazingly precise extent. We can even... Fascinating. Somebody coming down the other side of a, of a reasonable sized road, we can even sometimes see if they're catching a sidelong glance at us because the whites of the eyes enable us to read where the pupils are pointing. Well, Lacan wants to say this interest in what the other is looking at is energized by this question about dusting. Mm. I don't know what the person coming down the street is up to. I don't know what they want. And I don't know how I might or might not play into that. For instance, as we know, many women know this and, 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 and justifiably complain about it. Men can come along opposite down the, down, the, down the street, coming in the opposite direction. And women often can feel that those eyes quite obviously are not only on her, but maybe even selecting certain body parts right. to really check out. And Lacan says, this is absolutely typical and absolutely profoundly human. Mm. We're interrogating each other constantly with anxiety because we don't know what really the other is up to. And the eyes are a major clue. So we're constantly checking them out as it were reading the eye motion, but they don't ever really answer the questions completely. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, I love that part of the book. That was so good. So, yeah, this is an extremely interesting thing about our human relationships that it's all fraught with this unknown, mm. unknown dimension. And it doesn't mean that the ones we love are exempt from it. The, sure, the sure. love would be just as mysterious, if not more so. Sure. You know, my parents, what do they really think of me? Why did my father say that to me? Why did my mother not hug me when I was, when I was hurt? Or when I was hurt, uh, or I wasn't hurt, she hugged me too much, or whatever. You know, we have all these weird questions about what are they really feeling? Mm. Not just strangers. It's actually sometimes our intimates that are the most troubling in what we do not know. Sure. Well, and I think one of the things that just really resonates with me about all this is that there's that ambivalence, you know, even in terms of anxiety, it's not just having the anxiety and wanting to run away. It's, it's because there's anxiety, it's constantly checking. So it's, it's fraught with those two sides. And, and I just think we have to honor that, that ambiguity. That is great. I'm glad you raised that because I'm kind of going on to the last, that key point. That's absolutely right. The, the fundamental posture toward the other insofar as they remain in this always this dimension of something unknown about sure. their intention. I'm ambivalent about that. Ambivalent meaning I'm both drawn to it. I'm attracted to know it, but I'm also afraid of it. Mm. So this mixture of fear and desire of push pull of hot and cold, um, it's always there. It's always there. Yeah. Sometimes more, obviously, sometimes more front and center and, so, and more disturbingly than other times. And what we seek out is usually, here we're going to get back to your falsely false thing. Okay. Seek out in our social relations 
to minimize the threatening part. So what we want to do is we want to reassure ourselves and each other. So what do we have? We have extremely routine behaviors, which in any given culture are understood to be standard. In our culture, it's standard to meet somebody and say, by the way, first of all, it's standard not to acknowledge them. If you're on the street, you don't say anything. Right, right. But if you're at a cocktail party, or if you're even maybe going down the hallway in the school, you might say, hi, how are you? You might say this to a colleague, for instance, not someone you know terribly well, but you meet them in the hallway. You say, hey, how are you doing? Hi, how are you? What's interesting about this phrase, this is part of what I call the, what Lacan calls the falsely false. Yes. Is it's a kind of fake greeting. Mm. You're not really wanting to know how they are, even though you're asking it. You're saying, hey, how are you? You're supposed to know on the receiving end of that greeting that this is not a real question. And so if the person said, oh, my God, I'm so happy you asked me how I'm doing. I'm horrible. Oh, God, things are so so bad for me. You'd kind of shrink back and say, uh-oh. Yeah. They don't understand <laughs> the code. Yes, yes. You're not supposed to really answer this question. You're just supposed to say, fine. And then say, how are you? And I probably won't even answer that. It's right. the usual changes. <laughs> Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? That's it. And they walk on. Mm. The point was to sort of just check in as if to say, you okay? I'm okay. Okay, see ya. Right. That's all it is. It's the precise opposite of what it seems to be. It's not really asking to you to tell me something about yourself. It's saying, I acknowledge you, but I like to politely skip talking to you so take this as a little gesture that just as a gesture let's get on with it you have your things to do i have my things to do goodbye right that's what yeah that's so good i I just remember uh one of my sons who's who's a teenager now but when he was real little we'd walk through the mall or store and there'd be a kiosk and they would say how are you and he would stop and say well actually not that great or you know this happened today (laughs) And and, and i had to say you know james I know this is kind of harsh, right. but they don't really care about you, and they're probably trying to sell you something. But this is just a way in our culture that we kind of acknowledge each other and then move on. So that was <laughs> something right. I always think about. Exactly, and this is exactly what you would expect from a child because they haven't yet learned the code. Right, right. They haven't learned. But now here's an interesting little addition to this. Uh, we said there's always the possibility of the real. Mm. And in its own way, the real can come in here. When someone says, hi, how are you? And the expected answer is fine, even when you're probably not fine. You just, that's what one says. Sure. Fine, fine, I'm fine. This exchange, this goes back to what is false about the falsely false. It's, okay. This offers the, offers the opportunity for me to say, Rarely happens, but it's kind of cool and interesting that it does sometimes. Sometimes people say, hi, how are you? Fine. And the person says, no, I, I, I really mean, how you doing? They break through the conventional greeting, which is totally empty 
and is supposed to be there just to allow us to pass without having any real interaction. Precisely that fake gesture game can be stopped at any point. And you can say, no, 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 I'm not playing the game now. I'm really asking. Mm. This possibility is always present, rarely taken advantage of, of course. Sure. But notice how it's precisely the lie. Hi, how are you? Fine. Both of them are lies. This is not a real question, and this is not an honest answer. But it sets up the possibility. It stabilizes us both for the moment. But it sets up the possibility now of taking another step, if we ever want to, to say, hey, no, 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 skip. I know it sounds like just an empty greeting, but actually, I really want to know. I heard from a friend that you're having a hard time. Yes. This is where I think the real can feel like a rupture. Exactly. Precisely. You've ruptured and you've gone to another level. Now you're really engaging them on the level of what even they themselves may not know about themselves. And they may start struggling. And it's interesting and often rare that they meet somebody who wants to join them momentarily anyway. Sure. In the- can I tell you faced with something like the real? Yeah. Can, can I tell you, I mean, what's coming up for me just as a quick antidote is this happens given what I do. I'm a psychotherapist. And especially when I'm working with someone that we don't have a quite of a relationship yet early on in the treatment in the beginning, there will be a lot of anxiety and, and, it, and it shows up in sort of small talk. And there's a lot of just kind of the prescribed code, you know, how's the weather? How was your weekend? And I feel like it's my responsibility to kind of gently transition us into the real, just, just for a moment into what's really substantial. And, and it can feel a little bit violent sometimes or just like a, that's, that's why I say it's a rupture. It, I, I always feel it when we have to move from that register to, to the real. So, yes, exactly. And Freud's, Freud's view, as you know, is if you don't get beyond the small talk, that's so reassuring and so almost sure. Compulsive, you're not going to get anywhere. Right. It's only by, by rupturing that tissue of everyday small talk that makes everybody feel better. Sure. It's only by rupturing that, really violating it, and mm. thereby both the other and and also acknowledging or letting in stuff that's going to threaten you. Absolutely. Only then that you're going to be able to do anything. Yes. Psychotherapeutically. Sure. Okay, by the we, way, yeah. no, look at this. One of the ways that Freud built this into psychoanalysis is he often would not and he would counsel his fellow analysts in training not to engage at all or mm. almost not at all in any of the usual pleasantries. So you might come in to see the analyst and she or he doesn't say anything. Mm. She simply goes and takes her place in her chair at the, at the, at the head end of the couch and you're expected to lie down and start talking. You lie down, she still doesn't say anything. And you're left with this, by the way, this is said by somebody who spent years in, in sure, analysis. Sure, <laughs> This very thing, I'm describing my analyst. <laughs> you, you, you are on the couch and she hasn't said anything. Mm. You can't, she's out of sight in back of you. 
that's the pressure of the real. Wow. Man, I never thought about it like that, but that's so good. I guess it's like a blank screen and that's where you do the free association and but 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 what an encounter with Dustine. Holy shit. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. The and by the way, even Lacan doesn't um this is an, a sideline for specialists, I suppose. He doesn't he he introduces his concept of Dustine with enormous fanfare. He says, Wow, this is a and then after that seminar in 1959, he only very seldom comes back to it. And one of the ways he could have come back to it would have been to say, the patient, the, 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 the analyst on, the person in analysis, faces the analyst as almost pure ding, pure unknown thing. Wow. That's what actually energizes the whole... That's incredible. Dynamic. Uh, um, thank you for opening that window for that's that's really powerful. I, I think that resonates profoundly with me. Wow. So okay, Rick, can I read just a, a sentence or two that you wrote, which I think is a perfect segue into maybe the, the 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 second part of your book where you begin to explore how this concept of dasting and and a psychoanalytic way of thinking about religion connects to Greek polytheism and Judaism and Christianity and some other traditions. Okay, so you you say, my central claim in this book is that religion can be defined as a culturally mediated relation to the unknown beyond that Lacan called Mm -hmm. Das Ding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I just think that's so well said. Right. So where do you think we should go? Do, do you want to unpack each tradition? I, I know I said when when we first started that that I probably know Christianity the best, and in some ways that seemed to be the religion that Lacan was most interested in, in terms of what he called the Roman religion. And, and I just think you have some profound insights into how you maybe understand Christianity in light of this kind of psychoanalytic view of religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay, let's... Actually, I think I can do this briefly enough so people can understand it, even though it's a really brief schematic. But if we, sure. one of the biggest arguments in the book is that basically we can find this function of dust ding, the unknown, the relationship to the unknown, as really central to every religion. Yeah. The religion, as we call it as anthropologists, the phenomenon of the religious is the human relationship to the unknown, which is partially stabilized by a tradition of beliefs and ritual practices. Sure. But precisely if that's so, precisely when we sort of take that point of departure, what's really fascinating is we can take the three great religions that have kind of shaped Western culture, Greek polytheism, Judaism, and Christianity. And we can say in a really interesting, we can say it even quite simply, they each in succession reshape the relationship we have with the unknown. Mm. With the Greeks, the unknown was located in the behavior and personalities of the gods. Right. Never know what the gods are going to do. And hopefully you're going to help make what they do 
favor you by giving them the right sacrifices. Sure. Basically, you don't know what they're up to. You don't know what they're thinking. You don't know what their motives are. And if they're kind to you, just count your blessings because they could also rip you to shreds Mm. the minute they decide that can live without you. So the gods themselves are this locus of the unknown, which absolutely is relevant to your survival. Sure. Relationship is to, to God's trying to please them, but they that puts the now notice that puts the unknown way out there on the to, on, on, a, on Mount Olympus or something. In another day. right <laughs> arrive Abraham. Mm. Abraham is accosted by the Jewish God. He's accosted by Yahweh. Of course, even saying Yahweh, we we're, we're, we're taking a departure from strict Jewish posture because he's abraham is accosted by something unnameable right he doesn't know what it is right the jewish god has in a single god has now taken the role of the unknown Mm. one who speaks to me and yet i can't understand what he's saying what do you mean what do you mean you want me to worship you by cutting the foreskin off my penis. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. What? what? What are you talking about? That's insane. I don't understand who would demand such a thing. This is a God that you could easily imagine is insane. Sure. A kind of evil being of some sort. Uh, let alone the second great chapter of the Jewish formation story, you know, where God's promised he'll give you nations whole nations if you just circumcise you yourself then the second one he says i'll bring great nations out of you but then you have isaac born even though sarah is in her old age she laughs when she hears the prediction that god's going to bring a child out of her but you have isaac and now now isaac is a young man and god comes back to you and says okay take isaac isaac up on mount moriah and offer him as a sacrifice and you suddenly feel like, if you're alert to this at all, sure, God has again become completely inscrutable mm. and traumatic. Inscrutable. I have no idea why he's, he's requiring of me of this. This of me. In fact, this is the the being, the great God who promised me a whole nation, and now I have my only son, through which any nation, if there's going to be one, has to come. And he says, "Go up and slit his throat." Yeah. So the point is here, in some very deep sense, the Jewish God incarnates dusting, the unknown in the other. We can't figure out what he wants. And you can continue that through the whole tradition of Judaism, this magnificent tradition of interpretation of Talmud, uh, the the, the great rabbinic tradition of trying to... uh, uh, interpret the meaning of the law. Tell me again, what did God mean when he said that, yeah. when he asked, and so on and so forth. Now, it seems then you, you've gotten to the perfect Lacanian religion, because here we're constantly asking, I heard what you said, but what does it really mean? Mm. That's kind of like the quintessential Lacanian understanding of our relationship to language. We're constantly saying things to ourselves and to each other 
when we could always stop and ask again, okay, okay, I heard that, but what are you really trying to say to me? There's the moment of the unknown. You could think with, with Judaism, this is the ultimate Lacanian religion, the ultimate religion of the mysterious, unknowing symbolic. Right. It's not. The real religion from Lacanian point of view is Christianity. Why? Because Jesus comes along and says, forget, you know, he doesn't exactly put it this way, but in effect, he says, forget God's up in the clouds. The divine is what you meet with every human being mm. you encounter. Yes. You have to love and embrace the fellow human being right in front of you. It's all, it's literally as if the Jesus message is the Lacanian message. Every human being harbors this unknown, which can be, in fact, almost always is, deeply unsettling. I was going to say it's, it's a monstrosity in some ways. Yes, exactly. Deeply we troubling. Imagine it to be monstrous. Yes, that's right. That's right. The very fact that we do tend to, you know, you're coming down the road at night alone, and on the other side is a, is a lone, dark figure coming toward you. You begin thinking, oh, my God, who might this be and what might he intend? Mm. This guy going to slip my throat. It's a matter of the, the imaginary um, or the this kind of, registration of the unknown and the other yes it very quickly becomes filled out with all kinds of terrifying fantasies that sure. i sort of try to fill in the blank with sure so man now oh, there's so much there but c- c- can you speak a little bit to how christianity has an institution or as a movement kind of lost this perspective I, I don't think totally lost it i think you find streams of it throughout its history but if, even if you look at it today, I, I'm not sure that's what so many people in that religion emphasize. They they emphasize quite a few other things. I used to, I, I often had the feeling when I was writing this book and had it even more when I finished it, that, that it will be a book that everybody's unhappy with. <laughs> because it will make atheists unhappy because it takes the God question seriously and right. says, well, actually, religion is... The main thesis of the book is religion is the prime symptom of the human being. We'll oh, always there you go. Religious religion is not dismissible. Mm. We can't graduate from it the way Freud suggested. It's not simple childishness that we need to simply grow out of. So that's one claim of the book in the name of Lacan. That's one thing I'm sort of laying out. On the other hand, however, the people who are um, the atheists will be horrified that I'm Believing too much, sure. but the believers will be unhappy because I also say that religion tends to be here. We come back to the term we used earlier: deeply symptomatic. Symptomatic, yeah. I was hoping you get into that. If it, if religion opens, and every religion does it in some way, if every religion opens our our sort of confrontation with the unknown, it also tends symptomatically to supply us with defenses Mm. against that so for instance in the case of greek polytheism we export the unknown and we put it in the person of the gods and the will of the gods yes then we just make sure we're constantly sacrificing 
we put all our energy into sacrificing, hoping we're going to please the gods and they'll be friendly to us. But the sacrificing becomes a whole game. It becomes a whole ritual. Well, literally, yeah. ritual in which I kind of lose myself. And thereby, I'm less anxious. I don't know whether we're going to survive, but here's what we do to please the gods as much as we can. We'll offer a, the lamb, the, the heifer, the goat for sacrifice, etc. Judaism. I don't know what Yahweh really wants of me. But we'll go to the school, you know, uh, and, and, and study our Torah and we'll, 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 we'll try to do our best to figure out the meaning of the law. Right. We'll invest ourselves in this unending scholarship of, the, of our own religion, which, by the way, I'm not, not at all saying is a bad thing, but it has this function of calming us down, of allaying our anxiety. If nothing else, it gives us something to constantly be doing. And the fact that we have this gigantic law, all of the laws of kosher life, the, the halakhic laws, all 613 of them, that give us a kind of stabilization. Sure. This is all the more important because the God we've imagined is so unknown and so basically terrifying. Yeah. So what happens in Christianity? Jesus comes along and says, look, you've got to finally get to the real source of the unknown, which is the person sitting across the table from you. Mm. It's every other actual human being. That's the locus. I am there wherever two or more of you are gathered. The dimension of the divine in all of its terrifying uh, unknown character is in the other person. And what you need to do is embrace that. You need to love this other unconditionally, accept what them you don't know. Mm. Of course, Jesus makes this doubly forceful by saying, not just love your neighbor. He says, no, 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 no. That was already in the, in, in the Torah. You have to love your enemy. Right. Love the one who you already think is dangerous. Mm. Who the unknown in whom you are already terrified by. That's the one you have to embrace. That's the one you have to invite in for the night. That's the one you have to love. Mm. So what then happens? This is an almost impossible demand. Right. You embrace everybody. You put your anxiety aside and you embrace the unknown in everybody. No one can do this. Or at least very, very, very few. Right. Now, this is, I think, why Nietzsche says the one and only true Christian died on the cross. Mm. This is an almost impossible task. And by the way, look what it did to the guy who did it. Right, right. Uh, gets Jesus crucified. But um, yeah, that's the... Then, then this, the, the need for a symptomatic compensation in Christianity becomes more important than in any other religion because the demand is more direct and more anxiety-producing. Mm. It's kind of like Christianity didn't give us the fun of imagining God's way up there in the, in the heavens who we would please with our sacrifices. No, we have to face this abyssal question Every time we say hello to anybody. So what happens? 
very briefly and I'll shut up. Very the, the bottom line is Christianity invents orthodox belief. Mm. A kind of reassuring architecture of beliefs, credos, which I subscribe to. I believe in the one God, blah, 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 blah. The sort of multiple conditions of the Nicene Creed. Sure. Which lay out to me, I may not know where the other concretely stands, but I know where I stand. And these are the beliefs I subscribe to. And the beliefs I'm going to hold on to like a life preserver in a in a terrible storm at sea. It's the one thing that keeps me afloat is my belief. Mm. So I would say even much more than Judaism, I don't think Judaism in a way is a religion of belief. Not in the same sense as Christianity is. It's a much more open, by the way, for this reason. Right. Being a religion of continual uh, discussion and continual re-asking the question, what does the law really mean? In, in Christianity, you get this dogmatism for the first time. The Greeks didn't have it and the Jews didn't have it. Yeah, I think I, I forget who said it, but, you know, maybe this is an overstatement, but I remember one time reading that, that someone once said, you know, Christianity is, is, the, is the one religion that really has this giant theological tradition. That's not to say that others don't, but not in the same kind of way, emphasizing the kind of orthodox belief systems that you're describing. It's extremely yes, that's right. theological in that sense. Yeah, exactly. The, 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 the tricky part is distinguishing it because the Jewish uh, community has a, such an ancient and sure. endlessly elaborated tradition of discussion, rabbinical debate, um, and, and, and schools devoted to furthering and enriching and complicating this debate. Um, but Christianity is the first religion which really, uh, in, you might almost say, it, it invents dogma mm. invents orthodoxy sure. um, of course all religions are susceptible to this kind of temptation of orthodoxy absolutely uh, christianity i think has a special role to play and once i decide that some people are believers and some people aren't which is the christian you know the great christian invention in a certain sense right we're the believers we're the true believers and these people over here are apostates and unbelievers, all of a sudden, I can dismiss those unbelievers. Mm. I don't have to. I just love the insiders. Well, it's easy to love the insiders who are already signed on to all the stuff you supposedly believe. You just exclude the people who don't believe is the way you do. Sure, sure. Christianity, in this sense, is actually, this is the ultimate paradox of Christianity, the Christian, the Jesus messages embrace every single one with unremitting, unhesitating love. But Christianity at the same time, and for precisely that reason, creates this division between the good and the evil, the in crowd, my particular mm. tribe, and those who don't believe in God and who now are my enemy. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I think it probably probably is obvious, and I, I'm not just trying to, you know, beat up on Christians, but I'm thinking, at least here in the West, the United States, I don't feel like, or I don't think that Christians would be known as the group of people that <laughs> embrace the enemy. You know, so, so some would say, yeah. at, at least sociologically, the, the, the way it gets manifested, 
they might be the opposite. And and I'm not saying it has to be that way. There's complicated reasons for that, but I, I just think it fits with what you're saying that <laughs> the great call yeah. is to embrace the enemy, but it often gets manifested in exactly the opposite way. You know, it's weird because the the, the ten years that I spent working on this book, um, actually, I grew up in a, a Protestant, what was then called Congregationalist. Sure. Um, and I went in and out of periods of sympathetic, you know, something like belief, certainly interest. Um, and most of my adult life, especially as a philosophy professor, I was pretty, at best, agnostic, if not downright atheistic. And the la- the work on this book actually reopened me mm. to religion in general and Christianity in particular. I felt like, wow, I think in a certain sense, Christianity opened up something really quite daring and quite beautiful um this this demand to love to love your fellow human being kind of no matter what yeah whatever and so christians might really like this you know <laughs> and it's generally there it's a kind of celebration of christianity but if christianity is in a certain limited sense deserves a kind of applause for this most direct engagement with the unknown loving engagement christianity is if, if in that sense it kind of hits hits the bell of, of 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 kind of especially achieving something really sublime christianity is also the most over defended and compromised mm. religion sure um i i agree best and the worst almost you sure know? sure well said you know the other thing too that i would say is if if we're being called to have a, I don't know if confrontation with the others, quite the right way to say it, I would also say that it's also calling you into a confrontation with the other in yourself, with, you know, going back to the whole idea that we're divided subjects, that we have this vast unknown, we have a void within our psyche, that, that, that it's not just the other outside, but it's the other within. I think that's a crucial thing to wrestle with. Oh, thank you for that. I, I, this is this is why I wanted to flatter you about your well, thank you. wonderful of asking questions because that's exactly correct, exactly correct. What's ultimately at stake here is not simply the other; it's the it's the unknown, the mystery that I am to myself. Yeah, that's at stake, and that's what makes anxiety over the unknown and the other. That's what gives it its real bite and its real terror. Is it we are. Let's Lacan is right. I, I basically think he is. We are strangers to ourselves. Mm. So the, the the real is something not only that we find in the other, in the, in the unknown character of the other, in Dust Ding, but it is in ourselves. Yes. Uh, now, now, that's the ultimate gesture of love is a kind of embrace of what of what you do not know in yourself. Oh, I love which that. Harrowing. Now, I don't know if you'd quite put it this way, but just even going back to Freud's kind of critique of religion, that it offers too much certainty, I almost think that the ethical call of your book is to embrace the uncertainty, you know, I think in, in, in the, and, and, and to lay out a vision of ourselves in the world where there's unknowing as Absolutely. almost the bedrock of everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. If there's one kind of uh, generalizable takeaway of the of this perspective um it's something like a plea a kind of a whole worldview in a way 
that really prioritizes embracing what we do not know. Yes. Having a very different relationship to what we do not know. Yes. A, a positive, accommodating, uh, tolerating, and, 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 and hopeful, um, but not naive relationship to the unknown. Absolutely. Yeah. Rick, I've, I've got to read the last line, the last little kind of mini paragraph of your book, because it was so beautiful. And I think it really ties everything together. So you say the question at stake will be the degree to which we might someday more honestly, more soulfully, more courageously, more seriously, and more playfully accept the depths of unknowing that perpetually haunt our sense of our stable selves and the world in which we breathe. Man, that's powerful. That that right there is the sense in which I want to be religious. Yeah, and, and, and me too. <laughs> okay, and, and 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 live out my life. Sign <laughs> me up. I, okay, I, yeah, me too. <laughs> which which you know so so do you have? I I know we're almost out of time, but do do you have a sense in which is that type of ethics? Is that type of religious impulse? Is it possible to form communities around, or or do you think by its very nature it's something that's not really going to result in something like an institution that I think requires some of the certainty and the organization to kind of endure. And the, and the answer disappointingly is I don't know. Okay. I I don't either. (laughs) I thought a lot about it and I just don't know. I mean, you could take my wife is, is uh, grew up in a Unitarian family. Okay. And she really appreciated the openness of Unitarianism. It's kind of um, non-dogmatic character. Sure. But she also, I think, found it curiously, kind of almost surprisingly unfulfilling. Mm. Uh, and, um, and, and, and by the way, also given to its own kind of uh, foibles and weaknesses. and So... so I don't know the answer to that, Kike. I really think that that is a huge question of going forward. How, I mean, it's not totally unconnected to the question about world religions and a kind of possible um, evolution of religion on our planet. Sure. Which would, different religious traditions might find common ground. It's mm. not the same question. Sure, but sure. Irrelevant to it either. And I don't, I really don't know whether or not what what the sort of chances are of that kind of development. I don't know. Got you. Well, I appreciate you answering that. So, Rick, is there any other thing that you would want to share either about yourself or the book, your perspective uh, before we come to a close? This has been a phenomenal conversation. It's one of my favorites that I've had so far. I just am so grateful for your time. And, and thank you for the 10 years that you spent working on this. It, it shows it's a phenomenal work. I'll, I'll say one little thing. Um, okay. Well, two little things. One is that um, I've been fascinated by this. Um, uh, as readers who have, or listeners of yours who, who listen to the segment about the, the memoir um, called Blown Away. Mm. It's a memoir coping and trying to come to terms with my son's death from, uh, from, from suicide. He killed himself in despair over a really terrible drug addiction. One of the things that, that, that 
intervened. That was 17 years ago that he died. And uh, I, one of the things I describe in that memoir is an, a, an experience with psilocybin um, at Johns Hopkins. I was extremely lucky to get into one of their s- studies, um, having people take various concentrations of psilocybin, the psychedelic uh, substance psilocybin, in the course of very careful interviews and and, and real support. Um, and it was one of the most I would say it is the most transformative experience I ever had. Wow. One of the most interesting things about it was um, it left me with a new understanding and a new, maybe even more important, a new tolerance for not knowing. Mm. And both of these books, which came out this year, the the memoir came out in May and Embracing the Void just came out last um, in, in November. They both are very deeply about this issue of the relationship we have to what we do not know and maybe cannot know. Uh, that's where the memoir ends with, you know, what I, what I didn't know, even when my son was alive, let alone when he did, when he died and why he died, why he, chose to kill himself and so on but then this religion book is all about the unknown and i'm now looking back on it i can only kind of see this now sort of in retrospect i've written these two books that are really very very deeply centered on accepting the unknown and i i think it's like permanently altered me for the good i might say yeah. i might add but it's been really interesting. It's been a real kind of like personal journey uh, of my own. The light motif is of which is this this a little greater opening, a little more authentic and heartfelt connection and sense of almost duty to the unknown. Yeah. You know what that what that brings up for me is in in a lot of the work that I do with men they're always wrestling with kind of what the meaning of life is and I think they come in thinking it's going to be an answer to a question or uh solving some kind of riddle but more often than not I think it's coming to I don't know what the right word is accept or surrender to the reality of the unknown that 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 is in some ways the meaning of life um, it's not like a, a a proposition that one kind of assents to and discovers. It's yeah, it's coming to have some kind of relation to Das Ding, to the the abyssal, the unknown, and and kind of navigating that. And it looks different for I think different people, but I, I, I guess that's one thing that I would want to end on is um, questions around the meaning of life. I think are also related to what you've been writing about. Yeah. And and I guess the, the 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 core temptation is to say about things you you don't know you're you're confronted with your with your own unknowns, and it's enormously tempting to say, well, I don't know, so I don't care. I don't right. have to worry about it. Right. You know, it's just something I don't know. So let's move on to something I do know. Or or and I think you allude to this in the book. You know, even in my time in the church, you know, if I had a question that was a big question around maybe the problem of evil or some something I couldn't understand, well, it's just a mystery. Don't think about it. That, that I, don't, I don't think that's what we're saying here. 
Yes, exactly. This is exactly where I was going. What, what, what's really key is to be able to sustain yourself in relationship to what you do not know without, without simply kind of flushing it away, but say, I don't know. And I have to kind of hold that close and see, can any progress be made with that? And, but I need to sort of position myself and it's almost a kind of honesty. Sure. That when I don't know. And I care. Yeah. Was, I, was it Keats? I think who talked about negative capability. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay. Yeah. Yes. De- yeah. Developing that capacity, I think resonates with, with what we've been talking about. Yes. What well, a lovely, uh, and by the way, it's, a, it's in a lot of the mystics also, um, Keats. I don't know if Keats got it from the mystical tradition, but, um, but his negative capability, you know, it's, um, uh, Meister Eckhart is a particularly mm. point about the importance of, of dwelling with what one does not know. Um, you know, the dark night of the soul. Absolutely. Um, really a big deal for a lot of the great mystics. Yes. Okay, Rick, w- would you mind just ending with the line of the podcast, which is just saying, continue the conversation? That is, couldn't be a, a better way to end, actually, especially as we're talking about this relationship to the unknown. Is, um, <laughs> oh, you know, yeah. Continue the conversation. Awesome. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the podcast, guys. I'd love to connect with you. Whether that means you sign up for therapy or you send me an email asking a question or maybe even explore what it would look like to get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. The best way to do that is to find me on my website at kikeautry.com. That's Q-U-I-Q-U-E-A-U-T-R-E-Y.com. Or you can just Google me. And there you'll find my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter accounts. You can also go to the website of the practice I work at, where I'm the Leeds Men's Counselor. That's katiecounselingformen.com. I hope that you guys are inspired by what we explore today. And as always, continue the conversation. Mm-hmm.